Welcome to the Virginia Wine Time Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, you get to hear us talk with Bill Swain, the winemaker of Ingleside Vineyards. Enjoy the podcast. So, what do you want to start with? Well, I guess we can talk about the basics, how you are from California, right? You started off in California, you came out to Virginia. Um, so in a roundabout you, way, yes, that's How did true. you make that transition and uh, what attracted, what about Virginia and the Virginia wine industry attracted you to move out here? Okay, well, you want the, like, the complete uh, history sure. based on my winemaking career? Absolutely. Okay, well, I was born and grew up in California, but my dad was in the military, so we bounced around a bit, okay. as military families do. And uh, I ended up going to University of California at Davis, which uh, happened to be the wine school, although I wasn't really attuned to that when I went there, because I was a, my declared major was geology. I changed to winemaking while, while I was there because I thought that I didn't want to have this itinerant career that I had kind of grown up in. And at the time, unless you went into education and geology, you went to wherever the, the newest exploration thing was and you moved every three to four years. So and I thought, no, I don't want to do that. I'll look for something else. And I had two roommates who were from the Napa Valley. They were not in the wine program, but they were from Napa Valley, so they grew up with wine. They kind of got me started on tasting uh, a higher caliber of wine than I had been exposing myself to up until that time. Okay. And I enjoyed it, took a class, took another class, and about halfway through my junior year, I decided I was just going to switch from geology to enology or winemaking. Well, the two seem kind of compatible. Uh, well, there is a, there is a fair amount of cross. I mean, if I'd you know been English or something like that, or or history, it, it would have been a more uh, traumatic move. It took me about an extra year of school at that point to, to get my degree. But I did have a, at least a decent uh, uh, science background. I just didn't have a real strong background in the in the biological sciences. But I had, you know, I'd done you know, some chemistry and things like that, and some physics and those types of classes. But uh, when you get into winemaking, you need to take biochemistry and biology and things like that that you don't need for geology. So I had to catch up in, the, in those areas, plus take all the the wine classes. Because we've noticed that some of the winemakers in the area have a chemistry background. Many well. do, and people get into winemaking from all sorts of different angles, and uh, I don't even know what the percentage is of winemakers who have degrees in winemaking. Uh, you know, I don't know whether it's 50% or 80% or 20%. Maybe somebody's done some kind of a study. So you started in California? Started off in California at uh, Charles Krug Winery in uh, the Napa Valley, San Helena area and I worked there for, uh, I think it was a hair over four years. And then I uh, was offered another job working for Cresta Blanca Winery as the winemaker. So I went from being an assistant winemaker at Charles Krug, working underneath somebody, to uh, being the nominally head winemaker at at another another winery. And uh, most of their grapes came out of the, the Mendocino area, although we also got some Hold some in from Santa Maria, which was actually south of San Francisco. Okay. But all coastal type type grapes, uh, just not from the Napa Valley. And I was there for uh, three and a half years, I guess. And during that time, that was run, that was a small winery owned by a large corporation. And it was Guild Wineries, which no longer exists, I don't think. Um, they've been absorbed by other people, but they 
they made a lot of wine, they made a lot of brandy, did a lot of distillation, and we were kind of the, the poor stepchild. They felt like they needed to have a premium label, but then again, they didn't really understand what that meant. So I had some frustrations with doing that. So even though it's, I think, a good experience from the point of view of uh, a career thing, learning the management level things that I hadn't I had to deal too much with as an assistant. So I did learn more of that, but also I learned some of the frustrations of kind of dealing with big corporate okay. ramifications for every decision that somebody else makes. And uh, so uh, that's the point that uh, my wife and I decided we were going to try to start our own winery. And we did research on where we wanted to do this, and we were open to, you know, anywhere on the West Coast, basically. So we did a, a month-long search of uh, different areas that we considered uh, by doing some previous uh, uh, book research on, on areas. Came to settle on an area in the, uh, the border between Oregon and Washington in the Columbia River Gorge, mm -hmm. and that's where we bought property, established a vineyard vineyard, uh, and then established a winery, so it was kind of a long, slow process, okay. and uh, got the winery going, and then operated that for nine years until, kind of as a family decision, for a couple different reasons. One, it was very rural, so the educational opportunities for my three genius daughters just went there, so we okay. <laughs> were looking for something better for them. Okay. And uh, it also, it was just a, uh, a small family winery was... Uh, was a draw on the family because I was putting in a lot of hours every week for and, and I didn't mind doing it but uh, probably if I calculated how much I earned per hour doing it it wasn't all that great right, it was right. just a lot of hours did you so, um, actually bottle wine or did you just sell the grapes no we bought we had our own wine we had our own label Three Rivers Winery was the name of the Three winery. Rivers Winery yeah, right. that label is now owned by somebody else okay. uh, I sold it to some the, the, the winery and the location and everything to somebody and then that got pieced off over time I think they made kind of an unsuccessful effort to continue the winery, okay. and uh, now the the label is in a different location, and I don't know what the, the house is still there. I think it's a uh, we, we bought an old Victorian style house that was the basis for the offices and the tasting room, and then put up a winery building up behind, and that all is still there, but it's not used as a winery currently. So you came out here when? when well, then following that, uh, I. I had a, we decided to move the family up to the Seattle area and we actually uh, oh. uh, bought a home in Woodenville, which is uh, it's two things. It's, it's close to where St. Michelle, which is the biggest uh, okay. yeah. uh, Washington winery, has their, their, their main winery and their headquarters. Uh, there are also s several other wineries there. And uh, there, it's, but it's also uh, kind of right next door to uh, Microsoft. And so the, the schools had a very good reputation, and the public schools, and which uh, there is not nearly as much private versus public kind of competition on the West Coast as there is here on the East Coast. Uh, there are a few private, mostly religious-based schools on the West Coast, but uh, in general, if you want to have a good education for your children through high school, you uh, kind of have to figure out where the strong public schools are. And so we, we chose that, that area for them, plus it had a winery-based thing, and my, my anticipation was that uh, I would get a job at one of the local wineries, and indeed I did, for Columbia Winery, well, actually Associated Vintners at the time. Columbia Winery was their flagship winery, but they also had uh, 
Covey Run, yeah. uh, Paul Thomas, and St. Chappelle okay. wineries. So it was four wineries at the time. They are now, they, after I left there, several years after I left there, that, that, that got sold to uh, Constellation. So it's now one of the Constellation of, of wineries that that group owns. But I was the production coordinator for all four wineries. I happen to know the president of, of Associated Vintners, and he, even though he didn't have an opening for a winemaker, he thought that he needed somebody to kind of get everybody to work together as well as possible in production, so that's what he hired me to do. That's what I did up until the uh, my oldest daughter got accepted to Stanford University, and we had earlier on said that if she had a list of you know these high-profile universities that she wanted to apply to, which are hard to get into, and we basically said, well, if you can get in, we'll figure out somehow how to how to pay for it, and she did. <laughs> so you had to do some work. <laughs> so I started looking for something that was going to pay more money than what I was doing, um, and uh, I took a job actually working in Venezuela for four years, and it did, did pay well, and it helped uh, all that stuff happen. And so the, you got out here to Virginia, how did that all Yeah, I went back after my four-year stint in Venezuela, which I probably would still be there, except things started getting a little precarious there politically. Yeah. And I just decided, you know, if I'm going to, I'd rather move on my own decision rather than kind of being escorted out. And so <laughs> I chose to, uh, you know, just make a break from it at the end of one of my contracts with them. And uh, came back, thought I might do something on the West Coast. But at the time, uh, my uh, youngest daughter was at Georgetown University in D.C. That's right. I think I remember you mentioned right. that. Right. And so that uh, got me kind of thinking, well, you know, I don't have to just think about West Coast. I could think about uh, something on the East Coast. So I started investigating. I had, I've had a couple Virginia Viognier's prior to this time. So I, I kind of did more tasting research and talking to my winemaker friends and stuff like that. And, you know, everybody kind of thought that there was a... Uh, a growing thing happening out here, and mm -hmm. so I started doing more research on it, buying more wines, answered a couple ads, uh, came out here and interviewed uh, here at a, another winery, and got offered both jobs and chose this one. And uh, here I am. And how many years have you been here? A little over four years now. Four years, very good. So your kids are all now out of college. They're all out there. Yeah. Are any of them interested in the winemaking business? Or? Uh, I don't think as a career. No, I don't think as a career. Uh, they, they they just have different uh, you know, things that they choose to do. You know, but the Stanford one, she's, she works for a big engineering company. Uh, my Georgetown one works uh, in the, for UBS, the big banking company. Uh, and then uh, the middle one. Uh, she majored in art and art history, and she runs an art gallery. Okay. So oh. they all had cool. divergent things. They uh, they all like wine, so I'm you know I was gonna ask ratified you like about wine, so that, and <laughs> yeah. uh, and we you know it, we had one wedding where we had all of our Ingleside wines at it, and there's another one coming up in October that'll be Ingleside wines. And, wow. uh, I'm expecting someday in the future we'll have a third Ingleside wine wedding. Perfect. Uh, so we'll see. So now, what, what made you decide on Ingleside Winery? What about the facility, or the wines, or the climate, or...? Uh, I guess it's always a combination of subjective and objective things that you, you look at when you make one of these decisions. Uh, I 
was the investigated what I could of of Ingleside and the other one before I came out here, and then I did come out here and talk to both people, and uh, there was a little bit of, uh, you know, I said I was interested in both jobs, but I needed to, you know, see what offers were there, and they kind of got into a little bit of a competition between them. Um, I, I guess I chose Ingleside because I, I like the, the basic character of the underlying wines that I was tasting in the barrels. I wasn't all that thrilled with what was being was in the bottle, maybe out there uh, uh, being sold, but it looked to me like a lot of that was because uh, they, they they were kind of past their prime, principally. And, uh, and so, but I think the underlying quality was there. I yeah. was tasting that, and then uh, just a nice facility, a nice family that runs it, uh, the, the living accommodations that the, they worked into the contract deal were. were very, uh, very nice. Okay. So, combination of things. So you came in right when like Virginia wine was really turning that corner from kind of a curious interest, but not something you really wanted to drink to, like, to some serious wines. Yeah, well, there were there were definitely serious wines already out there. There may not have been the awareness mm-hmm. in the general wine public that, that they were out there, and that 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 always takes a long time to. Switch around. Same thing happened in in Napa. So. Yeah, and well, now, it does take a while. Did you when you got here? Did you see the possibility for change in terms of what they had planted? What you could see for the future for them in the four years? Well, they had a lot of things planted. So I mean, I I didn't have too much in the way of ideas saying, oh, we need to try new varieties. Well, they had you know they had thirty three different grapes in the oh, really? ground at the time. Some of them were just there experimental. Right. So I you know I wasn't it wasn't like I was thinking I was gonna come in here and say, I know exactly what's gonna work here and mm-hmm. if you just follow my advice and plant these grapes, you know, mm-hmm. everything's gonna be boondabar. So uh, I just I just wanted to change maybe some of the winemaking style and I think I've done that so with the, you know, the the wines the wines are wonderful. Here we had, some, I think a lot of what we had today, some of them were, a lot of them were brand Three new. Three or four were new since the last time we were yeah. here. Yeah. 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 Well, that's typically what happens. You know, you, you put a lot, you bottle a lot of stuff to get tanks as empty as possible so you can bring in the new grapes. So the last, uh, well, what we got from, from our trip to Spain in uh, May, the middle of May, and since then it's been pretty constant trying to yeah. get everything ready, prepared, uh, and bottled so that we can be ready for the new grapes, which are just starting to come in. So, when you compare the Virginia wine industry now to you know, your experience in California, what's the comparisons and what are the contrasts? Well, comparisons are kind of a. a um, it's still a much more of a pioneering flavor to things out here, which. California was still in the middle of when I when I first got into it in you know '73, and uh, so uh, back when I when I started off in Napa, in Napa Valley, as I recall, there was more Chenin Blanc planted than there was Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay, to give you an idea. I don't know if you could find a Chenin Blanc vine anywhere in the in the Napa Valley now, but you know they people were trying trying to figure out what would not only what would grow well, but uh, what, what can they sell? Yeah. And people were buying uh, sweet white wines, and so there was Riesling and Chenin Blanc and all sorts of stuff. And so now there's there's not very much of those left, and it's all been rolled over into principally Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay and a few other 
things also. I mean, there's a dabbling of Dion Yeh and some mm-hmm. Petit Trudeau, Cabernet Franc and Merlot and stuff, but uh, mostly the, those varieties. Mm-hmm. So where is, what are the contrasts? What does Virginia have? To well, the main difference is the weather, and of course the, the marketing climate is different out here. Um, back when Napa starting off, it was basically, you know, uh, can the United States make real wine right. any place? You know, there's the only real wine made right. in France and right. Germany. Well, that was back in what, 75 or whatever they had like, the yeah. taste test. That was 76 when they had the, okay, yeah. the big uh, breakthrough tasting where um, Stag's Leap Winery uh, won out over all the top chateaus in this private tasting. And then uh, I think it was Chateaumalina. Was. Anyway, it was written by uh, Gergich. He now has his own winery. He did for Gergich Chardonnay. Hills. Gergich yeah. Hills, yeah. yeah. Mike Gergich, uh, I think it was Chateau Montalina. That, that actually had the wine. But uh, yeah, everybody thinks more about the Stag's Leap thing. Get, you know, red wine people are more serious than white wine people. Yeah. But actually, the white wines in those wine tastings did, as a group, better. The U.S. wines did better than, than the red wines. Wow. So. But yeah, that opened a lot of people's eyes, and that was the uh, that really, you know, it really was the launching point for for people to to say, oh, really, you know, those grapes and those wines are not automatically better than anything we can produce. Yeah. And uh, I think there's more and more over time. There are certainly a lot of people who think that uh, um, a lot, if not most. Uh, French wines are probably overvalued for what you're really getting. So what does, um, I mean, in Europe, because you, you, obviously you've experienced West Coast and East Coast, where do you think Virginia wine has to go from here to be considered in that class of uh, you know, the California wines or even the French wines? What, what needs to happen? Or maybe it's already happened, I don't know. No, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, you know, the individual wines that people have made have, have, have done well. Usually the quantities are so small that uh, there's never a, a, a huge impact on, on the wine drinking public because even if a wine does, is, is, an individual wine is, is very good, the number of cases usually isn't enough that uh, that many people get to try the wines. Um, so, you know, I don't know, it's, it, I'm sure things will be different than they were. You can't say that we're going to do follow the same pattern that California did and, and it only takes time. Uh, we, our weather out here is definitely more difficult to grow grapes in. And so uh, we will always have that kind of that European aspect of uh, good year, bad year, uh, which, uh, which California has much less of. They have good year, great year right. type yeah. of a thing just because of the weather patterns that they have. Speaking of that, how has 2006 been in terms of the weather for... For us, for it's been great. I mean, this this dry... I mean, the, the most critical time for, 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 for wine grapes is that last uh, two months when things are fully ripening. And if it can stay dry or as dry as possible during those months, and that's the same here as in Europe and in most places in California, they can almost rely that that's going to happen, but here we kind of hope it's going to happen, just like they do in Bordeaux and right. Burgundy and places like that. So, so far it's been, you know, like somebody draw, drew up the plan and said, hey, do this, and 
he's doing it for us. Yeah. Yeah. Right. As as good as 2005, 2005 was a good year, wasn't it? Uh, well, well, not, I don't know. Who knows? That's true. Who knows? Yeah, it's still know. a little early. I mean, we could have you know two weeks of rain or starting yeah. uh, tomorrow, and, and then all of a sudden things are turned on their heads. So, yeah. but at this at this point, uh, I'm I'm at least as optimistic as I was in 2005 so okay now let's talk about kind of the microclimate here because we're intrigued by your Syrah mm -hmm. and you grow that here right? yes we do and I don't think anyone else in Virginia no far when they were open made a Syrah but it wasn't from Virginia growing grapes right and that's 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 the the singular most uh, the biggest advantage that we have here at Ingleside I think is uh, we're in an area surrounded by the Potomac on one side, the Rappahannock on the other, uh, kind of this Piedmont-type uh, region out here, uh, you know, coastal plain thing, where we get much more moderated winters. And Syrah is one of those great varieties that would be a, a little treacherous for the Charlottesville. I was going to say that the plant. Central Virginia area. Right. I mean, that's, you know, and the reason that uh, most people plant uh, a lot more Cabernet Franc than Cabernet Sauvignon, the, at least the original reason, was not because uh, they thought, you know, oh, yes, Cabernet Franc will do well here. They thought Cabernet Franc will survive well here. Okay. And it also turns out that it does well. Right. But uh, so uh, in Syrah is that we are in an area where we can grow more varieties safely without running that winter kill risk that a lot of other wineries would have to encounter. And how many varieties do you have here? Uh, Thirty some, but some of them are just, are really just, you know, like a, a row or a half a row long. Just, you know, Eric Dunn's experiments. Uh, and then we have a, uh, a new vineyard that we are managing uh, about, you know, it's about 30 minutes, 35 minutes uh, driving time further east from here near Hague. And he has some other new varieties. He has some of the, you know, the tried and true ones, Merlot and Cabernet Franc and, and things like that. But he's also putting in some Torriga Nacional and oh. Piedmont Sang and Tanat and Traminet, wow. Chardonnay. He's doing a mixture of, of things. Sounding like, yeah, uh, some sounding of like Horton. Horton yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we do have some new ones that are going to be coming in. And we'll, how, we'll, how we're going to use them. We don't know. We'll start getting a little taste of that. Probably, uh, certainly not enough to make a variety, varietal Torrigo or Tanat or anything. Uh, but we'll at least be getting some of the grapes in, so we'll get an initial idea of what kind of quality we could start to expect next year. And maybe think about blending them with something else later. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. How we'll use them? It's, I mean, that's. One of the great mysteries of winemaking. I was going to say that's uh, the art of the winemaker. Yeah, you know, it depends on so many other factors, you know, including marketing. You know, if, uh, if we think we could sell a Tanat, even though it, you know, as the winemaker, I may say, you know, I really would rather use it as a blend to beef up something. But if we think we can get more money selling it as yeah. Tanat, then that may be the decision. Which well, so that's going to be a really hypothetical yeah. right at this yeah. point. But you know, uh, it's a big food wine, so yeah, it's kind of something to sell. So if you were on a deserted island, you had to pick one of your own wines for you. What's your personal favorite? I really like Harbor Duke Gold. I really do. Okay. I like the new 2002. So I, I, I got to make that blend. You know, it's choosing the best of the 2002 reds uh, from early on, you know, which ones I put into the nicer barrels, and, and then later on how we put hypothetical blends of all these different things. So it took a while to put that blend together, okay. and, uh, and 
I, I really like it. I think it's it's not. Did you try the Reserve Merlot? We did. So, we did. Yeah, I mean that's Those a big oaky blockbuster yes. kind of a wine, but it certainly to me is not as elegant as the Virginia Gold. Hey, you're right. So I would rather. I would rather drink the Virginia Gold. There might be some particular dishes that I might say, oh, that that you know that big bold Merlot is going to be a better choice for my barbecue or something like that. Well, I had the Syrah. I had the um, the Ingleside Syrah with the uh, lamb chops. Mm -hmm. Oh, that Syrah, yeah. That, that was, was perfect. Yeah, it is good. That was that's, good. A, that's a very nice one for that. Yeah. Now, when it comes to the blending process, how do you go about figuring out your uh, percentages that you're putting in each one? Like, for example, we found out that the, um, what was it that had the 5% cab farms? I think it was the, one of those, one of the, I'm not sure either, but like, I mean, do you have a process? Is there a science to it, or is it pretty much just you decide, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this, and There's see what's There's not much best. science involved. There are some, obviously, the legal limitations. I mean, in order to call something a varietal, it has to be 95 or 75 percent of that variety and 95 percent of that vintage. So uh, that's that's a limitation. Other than that, uh, we tend to have more of each variety than we need to bottle as that variety so I so I'm not I'm not in, in I'm very fortunate but I'm not in the position where I need to try to figure out how I can stretch something all the time in order to make the you know, the, the blends work out for, for marketing and sales reasons so uh, anytime I'm blending something into our Merlot or our Cabernet or whatever it's because in my not the way I have it worked out, it makes it better than it would be by itself. In other words, 20% of uh, Merlot with the Cabernet or 20% of Cabernet with the Merlot makes both of them better. So when you're tasting your wines out of the barrel or you're ready to bottle, are you doing a comparison with what uh, the West Coast would produce or what Bordeaux would produce or does it depend? Or even just within years of your own wines. Well, that's still, you know, that we're still working that out. Uh, and, and boy, you have to be really patient in this business before you, I think, to see ultimate uh, success with anything. Um, I've been here four years. That's a, that's, a, that's a blink of the eye in, in, yeah. in winemaking. Yeah. And so, uh, and I, and I, and I, I guess maybe if you tried our wines before and you tried them now, you maybe see yes that there has been a definite change. But that doesn't mean that I have got it all worked out yet. It, it takes time, and you know, the, you know, is our, and also trying to figure out where the market is heading. You know, is the big oaky regs where the future are is, and and then we have to start uh, putting everything in more new American oak because uh, that's what people want to buy, like the Merlot Reserve, or is it you know, is it the freak forward Australian style things that we want to try to compete with, uh, uh, and then. And then evaluating, really, in my own personal opinion, what makes our grapes show the best, also too. So it's a combination of all these things. It's not, uh, uh, as with most things in winemaking, there are never easy answers, only complicated answers. So. Uh, uh, well, now we were told during the tasting that <clears throat> many of the whites went through a cold fermentation this time. Mm -hmm. What exactly is the cold fermentation? Well, I know that what temperature. Well, the, for instance, the Chardonnays, is that what you're referring yeah, to? Yeah, it is now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's done two different ways. The, uh, if, if it's a variety that uh, it's, I'm just looking for big 
fruit-driven, fruity as possible type wines, like the Pinot Grigio, um, or wines that I'm, I'm intending to use in, uh, in Blue Crab Blanc, then it'll just be a tank fermentation. We'll use a yeast that has, a, that has that characteristic that I'm looking for, and we'll ferment it cold, meaning usually around 55 degrees in the tank. Uh, but one of the one of the things I experimented with last year, and, and I'm personally pleased with the result of how it turned out, is in the, in the barrel fermented Chardonnays. Doing them in in well, we we rent these refrigerated trailers every year, and, uh, and we can get the temperature anywhere. I mean, we could freeze food in there. I assume that that's what we want to do. Get yeah. the temperature that cold, um, so I can adjust the temperature in there. And what we did was we we. Uh, put our Chardonnay juice in barrels, added yeast, actually an assortment of different yeasts, which we're still experimenting with that, uh, in the barrels, put them in trailers, and then I kept the temperature in the trailer at a point that, because of the insulating characteristics of the barrel that they're fermenting in, you have to keep the room fairly cold in order to keep the wine, again, at that lower temperature, which means below 60 degrees as much as possible at, at 55 degrees. So we had the temperature in the those trailers down to as low as 45 degrees at some, at some points. And most people aren't able to do that. And most people don't really even try to do that. Um, but I wanted to, uh, I think the, uh, we seem to get good structure uh, with our white wines, but if anything's lacking, it's kind of a, a strong fruity character. So I was trying to do some things that would uh, bring more of that to the front. And so that's what- uh, oh, This is very elegant. I mean, yeah. you would serve this at a dinner party or? It's, just, it's very nice. It has it has some oak complexity, but it's not the first thing you get on it. Right. First thing I get on it is that fruity character, yeah. and then after that is uh, oh, there's some oak in there too, and some creaminess, and, and all these other things going on. So I I like that. How Sur long did it stay on the oak? It was eight months. Eight months. Yeah. Surly. But eight months in that in the, in, in the trailer. In, in, no, no. That, that just the, when the fermentation was over, then we took them out okay. and, and moved them into our barrel, barrel storage area for, for standard aging and on the, on the yeast. Now, I guess maybe one last and then we can go as busy. But yes. um, we know that there are so many new wineries in Virginia. If you had to give some pieces of advice to these new winemakers or prospective wine winery owners and winemakers, what pieces of advice do you give or would you give? Well, I guess there's some of the standard ones that almost anybody in the wine business would give uh, is find out what varieties do best in your particular location. And that's an easy thing to say and maybe a much more difficult thing to figure out um, unless you've got a bunch of neighbors that have already been doing it for a while and you can do what they do if they've been successful. But otherwise, you have to probably kind of do what we've done here. Put a lot of things in and then slowly over time you figure out which ones are the best ones for you. And so you have to do that. And then after that, just uh, I think probably the most important thing that a small winery can do is what I think several of the small wineries have done, is that's they've, they've done made every effort they possibly can to make the best wine they can uh, so that they hit the market with a, with a real positive image mm -hmm. and then uh, try to build from there. Very good. Well, thank you for letting us talk to you today. I appreciate it very much. You're welcome. I enjoyed having you here.
Sorry, I walked in a little bit late, but no, that's right. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Bill Swain, the winemaker at Ingleside Vineyards. If you get a chance to visit Ingleside, make sure you let them know that you read about them and you heard Bill on the Virginia Wine Time blog and podcast. Keep checking the website for future Virginia Wine Time podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>